Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Hi everyone. My name is Susie Gasper. I'm a programs coordinator here at the State Library, which gives me the opportunity to work with a range of wonderful partners, such as the Grattan Institute. This evening's seminar is held on the homelands of the Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm very pleased to welcome you all to the policy pitch. And I'd like to give a warm welcome to tonight's speakers, Stephen Duckett, Zoe Wainer, and Deb Cole. According to research in an upcoming Grattan report, two million Australians delay or miss out on dental care each year because of the cost. Although people on low incomes fare worst, even people on higher incomes miss out on care. The existing public response is uncoordinated, unplanned and inadequate. State public dental schemes are so overwhelmed that people wait more than a year for care. What should be done? Stephen, Zoe and Deb will discuss some approaches to solving the problem of meeting unmet oral health needs. I'll introduce Stephen and Zoe who will be giving presentations and then they'll be joined by Deb. Stephen Duckett is a director of the health program at Grattan Institute. He has a reputation for creativity, evidence-based innovation and reform in areas ranging from the introduction of activity-based funding for hospitals to new systems of accountability for the safety of hospital care. Zoe Wainer is Chair of the Board of Dental Health Services, Victoria, and has recently completed a secondment to the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. She has a clinical background in cardiothoracic surgery and surgical oncology, as well as public health and health administration. Please make Stephen and welcome for the first presentation. Thanks, Susie. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the, of the land, uh, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and uh, pay my respects to elders past and present. And as you know, we are meeting today on the unceded land of those people. We also need to recognise that uh, Aboriginal people have a life expectancy of about a decade shorter than non-Aboriginal Australians. So our presentation today is about if, if our presentations are, it works better when you turn it on. Um, so we're, I'm, I'm going to first of all talk a bit about uh, some of the problems of dental care in Australia and where we are, and also talk, uh, highlight some of the differences between dental care and other aspects of the health system, and then move on to talk about what, where we might go. Um, now... Most obviously, in Australia, about 70% of all health spending comes from government. And if you look at, say, hospitals, uh, 80% or almost 80% is, uh, is state and Commonwealth funding. Um, 
out-of-pocket costs represent a trivial proportion of hospital spending, public hospital spending. Prescriptions, uh, there are regulated out-of-pockets for the pharmaceutical benefit scheme and uh, uh, patient out-of-pockets represent about a 13%. Primary care, somewhat similar in terms of proportion of out-of-pocket costs. But with dental care, the pattern is so different. It, unlike the other areas where uh, Commonwealth and state public sector spending dominates, in, the in dental care, it is private out-of-pocket costs that dominate. And as a result of that, people miss out on care. And so this is, this is the result from a survey from Australian Bureau of Statistics survey where they looked at how many people in 2016 needed to see a dentist and about just over 10 million or so needed to see a dentist and most of them saw the dentist. A significant minority didn't see a dentist and of, of that, of the total number of people who needed to see a dentist, about 12% didn't see a dentist for some reason other than cost. And that might have been fear of seeing the dentist, it might have been inconvenient to see a dentist, and I'll look at that in a minute. But 18% of Australians who needed to see a dentist didn't see a dentist. And uh, as I said, some of them were, 18% didn't see a dentist because of cost. Some of them uh, for a lot of other reasons, and here is those. So this graph shows all the people who didn't see a dentist, what was the main reason for not seeing a dentist? And so the main, in terms of the main single reason for not seeing a dentist, cost far outweighs everything else. But even when you look at some of the other factors, such as um, dislike or fear of seeing a dentist, cost was also often a reason. So the, the, the bar shows that for those who were, said they were too busy, some of them also said cost was a reason. Now, what's interesting about dental care, unlike some of the others, is that there is a steep uh, income gradient. So poorer people are skipping seeing a dentist more, or seeing a dentist more often than richer people. And you can see there that for poorer people, about 30% of those miss out or delay on seeing a dentist because of cost, dropping down to 15% uh, for richer people. So even at high incomes, there's significant proportions who are not seeing a dentist because of cost. Uh, and there are income gradients for some of the other areas, but not so it's such an income gradient for general practice, for example. Now, you say, well, who cares if they don't go and see a dentist? Are they just going because, um, you know, what, what, is, what is the, the, the consequences of not seeing a dentist? Well, um, the missing out on a dentist has, has real consequences, not just for concerns about your appearance, and I don't want to belittle concerns about your appearance, because if you're worried about your teeth, you may not want to go to a job interview, for example. Um, but also, you're in pain. Many of them uh, experienced a toothache. Some of them couldn't eat certain foods. And of course, the incidence of these problems are greater in lower income people. Also, uh, there are, there are, if you have poor oral health, 
you might also have uh, other conditions that are associated with that, or rather poor oral health is associated with other conditions as well. It's also associated with lower workforce participation and lower, participation, uh, lower economic output, and also poorer uh, oral health is associated sometimes with presentations to emergency department, sometimes with being hospitalised for a preventable hospital admission. Um, we've got that in italics because the evidence for that is, is somewhat mixed, even though it's one of the ones that are often quoted. So what we're trying to present here is that this is a problem, and it's a problem that affects 2 million Australians. That is, I've said earlier that 18% of uh, Australians who needed to see a dentist didn't see one because of cost. That represents 2 million people who needed to see a dentist missed out on that care. Although uh, in other areas of the health sector, the majority of the spending is by government, that's not the case in, in dental care, oral health care, but still there is a large amount of money that uh, the Commonwealth government, but state governments also spend on dental care. But it is only for certain groups of people. So, for example, uh, the states spend a fair bit of money on dental care through state dental public dental programs. Across Australia, it's around $850 million a year, and primarily this is targeted people who've got um, pensioner health cards or, or healthcare cards generally. Um, the Commonwealth also spends money on some particular groups. Um, so for children, there's a Commonwealth Child Dental Benefits Scheme, which is specifically targeted to particular families in receipt of what's called the Family Tax Benefit A. And they spend just over $300 million a year on that scheme. It's, it's uh, a fairly poorly advertised scheme uh, because the, the, the proportion of eligible children who use it is, is uh, around 30%, I think. They're also, they've got, um, the Commonwealth also has money that it gives the states uh, in previous years and next year uh, for the, the state-eligible population. The Commonwealth spending, though, the biggest amount of Commonwealth spending is for people who have private insurance. And so the Commonwealth, uh, for uh, people of incomes up to 100000 a year or so, uh, have got a private health insurance rebate, which is around 20 25% or so, and that rebate applies to general insurance and general insurance covers uh, dental care. And so there's about uh, $700 million or so uh, paid by the Commonwealth to, through health insurance for dental care. So all of this adds up uh, in a relatively uncoordinated uh, way. Now what's been happening with dental spending over the years you can see that moving from left to right, the Commonwealth dental spending has been hovering uh, around the same level for the last decade or so. Um, the Commonwealth other spending uh, had a, a step change uh, 
10, five, five or 12 years, five or so years ago when the Commonwealth introduced uh, subsidies to the states uh, for dental care and the Child Dental Benefit Scheme. But since then, the last five years or so, you can see a steady tracking down of uh, Commonwealth spending other than through private health insurance. And if you look at the state government spending, that you can either see, you, you can interpret that two ways. I interpret it as a slow decline over the last decade or so, or you could say it's flat, but my, my interpretation is a, is a slow decline uh, over the last uh, decade or so. So this is, despite the problems we're seeing in dental access to dental care, governments are not responding at all. In fact, governments especially are, are sort of winding back their involvement. So as a result, maybe as a result, but whatever for whatever reason, uh, the, there are real access to the ex access problems to the existing public dental services. So this is a, a graph showing the waiting times uh, for access to dental care in the various states. And the first thing you see is New South Wales is, is an empty slot because they refuse to provide the data because they say the data are not collected in a con co coherent and consistent way. Whether this is true or not doesn't particularly matter, but it is the case that it's then impossible to compare how things are going across the country because there is not sufficient data at all available. However, if you just look at uh, Victoria, for example, the waiting times for dental for access to dental public dental services going up uh, in the last year for which we have this comparative data, 2016, 2017, uh, the median wait, that is the wait that at least half the people uh, had to wait for dental care was 400 days or so, um, but certainly more than a year. And you can see in some other states, such as Tasmania, people wait for a couple of years uh, to see uh, to get access to public dental services. So, um, obviously, one of the reasons there are these long waits is that the public schemes are underfunded. Uh, they're only seeing only funding to treat 20% or so of the eligible ad ad adults. They have the large waiting lists I've just shown you. Um, the long waiting times mean that they're almost forced to only focus on curative treatment. There's, they're, just, they're just overwhelmed by the demand that's coming to them. The Commonwealth support is uh, piecemeal and ad hoc. Uh, for example, in the last, just the end of last year, the Commonwealth said, oh, we'll extend the existing funding arrangements for another year. And it's always this on-again, off-again arrangement. The, there are overlapping Commonwealth state financial responsibilities. Children, for example, of lower income p parents are eligible for the Commonwealth Child Dental Benefit Scheme. They can also are seen in public dental services. And then there's a question of, private health insurance rebate, which is what the majority of the Commonwealth uh, money is spent on, and is that a good way of, of providing access to dental care. So we've said this is a mess. Um, maybe you, you shouldn't uh, do it, uh, you, you shouldn't fund it, this, you, you, should, you should have some sort of coherent scheme. And if you just look at the right-hand side for a minute, uh, what we're saying is eventually we should get towards a universal scheme. And what do we mean by eventually? Well, 10 years, maybe. 
and then of course everyone will be covered. Uh, and what we're proposing is that the eventual scheme should cover primary dental care and early, early intervention, prevention and so on. So not orthodontic. So it's just the basic access to dental care. Like the existing child dental benefit scheme, there should be a cap of about $500 a year or $1,000 over two years, uh, which is exactly the same cap that the child dental benefit scheme should have. It should, be, it should cover both public and private, so people can have a choice of where they go uh, in exactly the same way the child dental benefit scheme is. It should be the Commonwealth government funded because it's got the resources to do so and it should replace the existing child dental benefit scheme and, and other existing schemes. The cost of that though is uh, around uh, 5.5 billion net of the additional costs, the costs for example that the state government's put in already and the cost the Commonwealth government puts in already for the child dental benefit scheme. Obviously that's not achievable in one year but we think the Commonwealth should say this is the vision, this is where we want to get to. In the meantime, let's start on getting there. Let's set up the platform for getting there. And that would mean a dental scheme for the existing child dental benefit scheme arrangement and also healthcare card holders and uh, pensioner concession card holders. There are about uh, um, nine, nine or so million uh, people uh, in that, who are covered in that arrangement. And that would cost about a billion dollars a year. Um, I don't know why. Uh, yeah. Now, um, what we've said is, at the moment, there are these thousand dollar and and so on cap, but maybe over time uh, that can be replaced by service level caps. How many visits you can have? Maybe it can be replaced by service level caps targeted at particular levels of need, and maybe the whole scheme can be replaced by a scheme which has a blended payment arrangement with outcome orientation in it as well. So, um, so it, our general approach is this would cost about a billion dollars a year, which we believe is achievable in terms of funding arrangements, and so we believe that that's uh, a potential way forward to actually start an, a longer term implementation of eventually getting to a um, universal dental scheme. I'll stop there and answer questions later. Um, and in the meantime, the next speaker is Zoe. So thank you very much. So I'm Zoe Wainer, um, I'm Chair of the Board of Dental Health Services Victoria and I'd, um, I'd just like to thank you for the opportunity to present to you today about our work in value-based healthcare. Um, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today and pay my respects to Elders, past, present and emerging. So I'm sure most of you in this audience have heard the term value-based healthcare. It's become a very uh, sexy term in health at the moment, for want of a better word. But I don't think we have a common meaning about what it, when we're talking about it, about what we're actually talking about. So I just wanted to set the scene a little bit before we start talking about what dental health services has done as to what we mean when we say value-based healthcare. So this is a model that came out of Harvard Business School, Michael Porter, Elizabeth Teesberg and Tom Lee 
who decided to fix healthcare, as you do, uh, and really went about interviewing 300, 400 senior executives, senior clinicians, mostly around America, about what it was about healthcare that wasn't working. And I had an opportunity to do the course in 2015, and I remember Michael Porter saying, you know, everybody would say to me, healthcare is just too complex. You don't understand, Michael. And he walked away thinking, it's not that it's too complex. It's that it hasn't learned anything from business in 200 years. And he didn't mean that in a patronising way. In fact, he absolutely commended the compassion and commitment and the values of the people involved. But what he was referring to, I think, was healthcare has evolved. Uh, it hasn't been designed strategically. It's had to react. And it really has come from a situation of responding to acute care. And we're in a very different space now. So Michael and the team defined value as the outcome that matters to the patient over the cost of care. And when we talk about value-based healthcare, that's what we mean. So what's dental health services agenda in this space? So we started the journey in the public oral health sector in this area to improve the models of care around about seven years ago when we started talking about this, recognising the scarce resources that we had to invest. I, had, I joined the board in around about in 2015 and we undertook a new strategic plan at that point in time with a really strong focus on life course and prevention. And soon after this, I and the board and the CEO decided that value-based healthcare was probably the appropriate methodology to use for our strategic plan. So if I had to sum up what our aim was, it was to achieve the best health outcomes at the lowest po cost possible. So this is not about cutting costs, and I need to be really clear about that because that's usually where everybody jumps to. Uh, we're not trying to reach a budgetary bottom line by taking costs out. In fact, we all know that's the best way to strip quality out of healthcare. It's about determining the most efficient way to deliver good health outcomes and then carefully considering who in the team is best positioned to do it. It's about creating a system that is person-centred and co-designed with consumers about providing the right services by the right person in the right location at the right time. It's about creating a workplace culture that supports transformation because a workplace that feels valued, respected and engaged will support this amazing transformation that we're embarking on. And it's about integrating care and getting rid of single silos, single illness episodes within silos. So I just want to also note, obviously, that this presentation is very focused around the public oral health sector, but it is also applicable to the private setting, and there are examples of, um, quite a few examples of value-based healthcare being trialled in the, in the private setting. And as Stephen's talked about and we heard, the draft Grattan Institute report stated it's not just people who are eligible for the public sector who avoid seeking care due to cost. It's also those who would access it in the private. And other countries have a much uh, more favourable visiting pattern than Australia. So what's the case for change? Why do we need to change in oral health care? And I think we've heard some of that from Stephen today, but I'm just going to talk you through what our thoughts were in this space. So firstly, we have huge variations in services provided across the Victorian public dental sector. Just like the variation maps we see for Australia and globally in healthcare, oral health has the same pattern. So we looked at the state of Victoria and measured the variation between local government areas. I mean, I don't think, we, we recognise some variation is acceptable, but I'm not sure any variation that's present on that slide is acceptable, and it all indicates significant waste in the healthcare system, and no doubt reduced health outcomes as a consequence. 
So then we thought about the why from the, from the position of the three key stakeholders as identified in the Porter model, but I think we all recognise as part of the healthcare system. And that's the payers and the system is one, and the clinicians and the consumers. So firstly, what's the why for the healthcare system? What are the drivers of change? I'm pretty sure that this audience doesn't really need me to run through this too much. We deal with it every day. But it includes factors like increasing ageing population, increasing chronic diseases and the multiple comorbidity, comorbidities, rapid, rapidly evolving technology that changes where and how we deliver care as well as increases the costs, rising consumer expectations, uneven quality and significant variation across the system, and the unsustainable trajectory of the costs that we're seeing. So what's a why for our clinicians? Why would our clinicians think we need to think about change in this direction in oral health care? What our clinicians are telling us is that they're frustrated with the lack of impact they're having. They're aware of those waiting lists and they're actually not, they actually feel really strongly that we're not delivering what we're meant to deliver for the community while we have waiting lists like that. And those waiting lists drive a different kind of care. It's far more reactive and, and we don't deliver the health outcomes that we want to with a prevention focus. And what about the why for the consumer? So our consumers told us very strongly they feel like things are being done to them rather than with them. They want to enjoy life without pain or poor health. They want an active role in co-producing their care plan and they want us as in the dental services, to be more accessible to them. So that's the why for change. What's our current service delivery model, just briefly, in public dental? So we have a fee-for-service model which supports volume over value. 40% of the Australian population are eligible for public dental, and yet we only see 25% in any two-year period. Funding is limited, as Stephen's already outlined, and we don't have universal access to care. We're not improving health outcomes or decreasing costs. In fact, we can't even measure our health outcomes or costs. Care is not integrated, it's fragmented. And that's why we feel strongly that reform is needed to provide the right care at the right time, by the right person, in the right place. So we know we need to change and where do we start? So as I mentioned, we started with Michael Porter's model and I'm happy to provide this reference to people later. Um, as I've also mentioned, value-based healthcare is a word that gets bandied around a lot. This is actually a very clear framework with rigour behind it. And we decided to engage with this, net, with this framework to work out what would that actually mean in the oral healthcare sector. We ended up with a model that has 10 core elements with consumer engagement and co-design in the workforce at the centre. We also created a war room. We tried to call it a harmony room because that was more in line with our vision and mission, but our team really felt like war room galvanised us to get towards uh, where we wanted to go, so it stayed a war room. And in the war room, we mapped out our current state, ideal state and future state. We started with general care and emergency care as the, as the areas of care that we would focus on. The mapping process was done in collaboration with academics, researchers, clinicians, senior management and consumers, including representatives from our priority groups, refugees and asylum seekers, people without homes and Aboriginal people. The future state was then confirmed by our value-based healthcare steering committee, executive team and consumer and clinician advisory groups. 
In, we involve consumers during every step of the process, and that's actually ensured that co-design with consumers is at the centre of the new model, and we learnt an enormous about, amount about how we could actually improve their experience. Each of the wedges that you see up there is a huge body of work. So what's the value-based healthcare model of care? It has two components to it. First is a population health-based intervention, and that includes things like fluoridated water. You can't have a better example of good health outcomes for cost. High-value settings-based interventions, and this includes things like fluoride varnish programs, maternal and child nurse lift-the-lip programs, and midwife training for antenatal classes. And the second part is the individualised clinical interventions. These are co-produced care plans with the client and they provide high value services and we've actually done a whole body of work around what's a low value service and how do we stop doing that. Prevention and early intervention, minimal intervention dentistry and workforce working to the top of the scope of their practice within the team. So we're also working on developing outcome measures for oral health. It's all very well to say we need to actually uh, demonstrate what our health outcomes are, but what do those health outcomes look like and how do we actually measure them? We've, we're actually not very good at measuring health outcomes in health generally, particularly from a patient or consumer perspective. We can measure activity, we can measure inputs and outputs. We have some clinical safety indicators that we call quality, but I'm really sure that consumers would like us to move our conversation of quality around the absence of a negative outcome to the presence of a positive health outcome. That health outcome conversation continues to be elusive. So when Michael Porter designed his value equation, he said, oh, it's simple, we just measure health outcomes that matter to patients. And then he very quickly realised nobody was really doing that. And he set up, he and uh, the Karolinska Institute and Boston Consulting set up a not-for-profit organisation called the International Consortium for Health Outcome Measurement, uh, or ICHOM, although in the oral health we're trying to get it rebranded to ICHOMP, but we haven't been successful yet. Um, so they set this up, and the, and the role of ICHOM is to develop international evidence-based outcome data sets for major conditions. So dental health services, when we embarked on this, realised there wasn't an oral health one, and we partnered with um, Harvard Dental School and uh, ICHOM to develop the first oral health outcome data set. What that meant was DHSV and two very dedicated consumer representatives worked with ICHOM at all times of the hours of the day because they were, of course, based in North America and based all their conference times around there. So we were, well, we, I didn't have to do this. So up at 2 a.m. doing this really dedicated work to develop the standard set for oral health outcome measures. So it was a series of international teleconferences and Delphi voting rounds over two years, and we've now soon to have the adult oral health standard set finalised, and the development of the child oral health standard set is actually in process currently. So why measure outcomes and what do you do with them? We hear a lot about it. I think this is a really elegant way of thinking about some of the things you can do with it. This is Martini Clinic in Germany. It's a prostate cancer surgery clinic. And they use their data in two ways. Firstly, this is their public data. So you can see that they, they produce their five-year survival data, which most patients would expect us to work very hard to achieve as clinicians. And they're a little bit better than the population level. But then if you look at their one-year incontinence and their one-year severe erectile dysfunction levels, so these are the outcomes patients really think about, they're spectacularly better 
than the population level. So that does two things. Firstly, it makes patients want to go there. So it sets up competition around good health outcomes. And I actually know Australian men who plan to go to the Martini Clinic because they're aware of this data. It also does a second thing. It makes clinicians look at it. And clinicians think, how come they're getting such good outcomes? I need to go and, I, and learn how to do that. But it also might, makes Martini Clinic an employer of choice because clinicians want to work there to understand it. The second thing they do with the data is they use it internally in an identified manner. So the clinicians regularly review in a morbidity, mortality kind of approach, but very detailed granular quality data. And the example they give of how they use this in a continuous quality improvement cycle was the director of the clinic started to get positive resection margins. In other words, was leaving some cancer behind. They picked that up very, very quickly because they do such a regular review. And they had a whole process for him to then retrain with a person who had the best outcomes in that area. So that's some of the ways that we're thinking about how we want to use health outcome data. So... We're also developing a new funding model that will have incentives to improve health outcomes and support the value-based healthcare model. We know that we need to move away from the pure fee-for-service funding model, as this does not incentivise the system to drive to better health outcomes that matter to the patients and to community. So how are we doing that? It's quite complex. We've engaged a consultant and staff to assist us with the process of developing that funding model. We need to be able to measure value and reflect this in the funding model. So work to progress the funding model will actually commence next week and we plan to have the majority of that work completed in one year and then to shadow the funding model. But components of it are on, on the slide and include a capitation base with rates that will vary according to complexity and risk payments for improving health outcomes, which of course is core, and funding elements that cover laboratory fees without incentivising over-service. But as, uh, as Stephen said, we strongly agree that we need universal access to care. And I would just like to finish with a quote from George Bernard Shaw. I marvel that society would pay a surgeon a large sum of money to remove a patient's leg, but nothing to save it. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Zoe. And uh, I'd also like to welcome to the panel uh, Dr. Deb Cole. Deb is the Chief Executive of Dental Health Services Victoria, so Zoe is eloquently setting the vision there and Deb is doing all the work. Um, <laughs> so uh, thank you, Deb, for joining us uh, tonight as well. So uh, it's now over to you to ask questions of any of us. Uh, about um, what we've been talking about and also when you do so uh, could you please say who you are and if you come from an interesting place uh, say that and if you come from a boring place you might also say that as well. There are some mics there and I think I can see people so could you raise your hand if you've got a question or a comment that you want to make. If it's a comment please keep it within an hour or so. Uh, <laughs> There's a, there's a mic coming. Hi, I'm Lucy. I'm probably an interested observer who really loves dental care. Um, and what I wanted to ask about was um, sort of the fact that you've both foregrounded different levers to improve public dent dental care in Australia. One of them is around value-based healthcare and one of them seems to focus more on funding. I'm wondering how the two of you see those two things fitting together and which you see as contributing more and why? So I'll start. 
So um, we're writing a report on dental care and uh, we saw the foundation of the dental, dental improving dental, improving oral health in Australia has a number of components and Zoe's slide which said prevention and treatment is, is a good way of thinking about that. But we said that one of the things that has to be done is to improve access and that is having some sort of universal dental program. We met with Deb uh, earlier this week and she gave us her comments on our report and one of the things she said was, you haven't stressed enough in what you've written the importance of this outcome focus, that we have, we've hid, we hid it, it was there already, but we hadn't um, mentioned it enough. So we added a couple of extra paragraphs here and there, which say exactly that, that the sort of thing that, that Zoe was saying, that just doing more without thinking about what you're achieving by doing more isn't the way to go. So, I mean, funding is obviously one lever. I think the other lever is the transparency of data, and I think the Martini Clinic shows that as a really clear way of, um, of demonstrating that. And I think the other lever is consumer engagement and information. For me, they're the three that really... And, and they speak to the stakeholders who are involved, that you actually... One of the things that I like about value-based healthcare is it's saying, here are our key stakeholders, and how do we actually align all their incentives to result in better health outcomes for patients? And some of that's funding, and some of that's data, and some of that's engagement. Thank you. Thanks. They're really interesting presentations, and, and I guess mine is a bit more of a detail question. Um, I'm interested in the $3,000 per household and the thinking around that, and why per household? And, and so it came from the current child dental benefit scheme. It has a, a limit of $1,000 over two years for a child. And um, then we thought, well, if you're doing it for a family, then you, you you need to you can either keep the thousand dollars for an individual or you could allow a family to accumulate it and so essentially was it, it was that was the sort of thinking behind it that um, yeah to to allow a bit more accumulation to allow a bit of a bigger cap was where it came from do you think it's too high too low too middle but as I said, the $1,000 is the two-year cap for child dental benefit scheme, and we think it needed to be bigger than that. No, I guess I was thinking about how many people are in a standard household and multiplying, you know, dividing that by the people, and then was there an incentive for a family to operate in a more preventive way to maximise the benefit? So, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm thinking about the crossover a little bit between the value base, the outcomes yeah. focus and the inputs, outputs focus. Yeah, so one of the things that we've, we've said um, that the, the cap is there because it's there now. Um, as we did our costing, it turns out the cap is irrelevant for the costing purposes. Um, but we kept it in our, policy, our proposed policy just to give treasuries some sort of certainty. What we then said was that, like health insurance funds, you can have a cap based on the number of services, 
And then we said, but you could also have a risk-specific cap. So the cap we've got is pretty crude. And then you could say, well, you could move to some sort of blended payment away from the fee-for-service sort of orientation we've got there. All of this is predicated on more data. And we've basically argued that participating dental practices who participate in the scheme have to provide data, including data on the outcomes. Uh, and once you've got that more data, you can then do way more in terms of the design of the scheme than we were able to do in the absence of that sort of data. So what we're proposing is sort of an initial arrangement and that over time you'd move in a more sensible funding direction with more data. Um, I think I think it would actually drive, from a value-based healthcare, you would use that to drive the sort of behaviour to a more preventive model. And I think in the design of it, you'd need to make sure that when you, like at the current schemes, uh, the Child Dental Benefits Schedule scheme, where there are restrictions on the number of items, they're often the things that we'd want people to do more from a preventive space. So that would be a really important part of the design phase, would be to make sure you don't disincentivise by the number of Things, but that's a long way down the track. But I think that I think you're onto something there, which would we would use from a value-based healthcare perspective. Um, Meredith Kefford, I'm I've been um, hanging around the oral health sector for quite a while, uh, but had a holiday for the last ten years or so. Um, I must say, there's a bit of a sense of deja vu having <laughs> listening to this and um, all sorts of great ideas that have been floating around for quite some time. Looking at the graphs of uh, funding, how funding has changed over the last several years, uh, things seem to be getting worse, not even creeping up to looking better. Um, how on earth do, I mean, you know, maybe this is not the topic of what tonight is, but it just seems so wildly unachievable to get anything like that amount of money for oral health. We've been kicking and screaming for, for um, so many years already. So, Meredith, I, I don't think... I think a universal scheme in one leap is wildly unachievable. I think a universal scheme over a decade is not wildly unachievable. It is... The, just the most amazing gap in our healthcare provision. If you look at that first slide of the funding for dental care versus the funding for every other component of the health system, if you think about the two million Australians who don't get access to dental care because of cost, it is just the most amazing gap that, that we can think of. I don't think a billion dollars is, for the first stage, is out of the question. Um, sorry? Both the, the, the electors of Australia and politicians do seem to think that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe I'm too much of a Pollyanna, but I, I, I don't see this as a, as a thing for this current election. I mean, but I, I certainly, I would be, I reckon there's a 70% chance that if Labor were to be elected, that they'd do something over the next three or four years, either for the next election or in the meantime. So I don't, I don't think it's... I, I think the time has come. I mean, I think the... You know, I, I know you've been active for so long, but I think... I don't think it's out of the question. 
I think this is what happens when you leave, Meredith. It all went down, so it's your fault. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th I, th <laughs> I think there, there's, I mean, you can see um, politically, though, lots of, uh, there's a lot more awareness, certainly in my, my experience, sort of having been around since the Commonwealth Dental Health Program and beyond, where most of the community had no, no um, view about oral health services. You see it all the time. You talk to everybody in the, in the Medicare locals, they used to do reviews in the PHNs, they do reviews, and one of the overwhelming things that comes from the community is oral health is an issue. It doesn't matter who you are, people are prevented from accessing services. Um, and a lot of the data that Stephen was showing that shows it doesn't matter where you are, um, we, we are quite disadvantaged in Australia, whether you're well off or not well off. Um, and I think, I think the time has come. I think it is now a situation where the electorate will probably eventually do that. I think you'd see that in the state of Victoria with the, the recent school dental van um, key election promise that was put forward. I think there's, there's movement and I, it is time. And I think the other, uh, I'm uh, nowhere near as experienced as you in the dental health sector, but I think the other um, clear message I'm getting is we've got to put the mouth back in the body. Uh, we've got to stop seeing dental over here and health over here. And we're growing that body of evidence about what other relationships, as Stephen called out, with chronic disease to really drive home that we actually have to deal with this because it's not just about teeth, even though they're very important. It's actually a whole-of-system healthcare issue. And I think that body of evidence will also help us in that political conversation. And, of course, as you well know, Meredith, you know, the more people in an audience such as this who lobby their local members to do something, the more chance that the local members will lobby the government to do something. You need to get get up on the job. Get get up on well you're involved in that, so you can do it. Over here. Hi, uh, Daniel Andreas and Cochran from Pediatric Dentistry at the Dental Hospital. Um, my question is, number one, in those funding numbers, a thousand dollars, three thousand dollars, do you really think it's enough? Um, but also, is it even, if we're talking about universal care, should we not talk about targeted care first? And the reason I bring that up is if we look at six year olds, for example, about 50% are caries free, 50% have caries. And if we look at the worst 10%, they have the majority of that disease as it is. So there's so much social disadvantage um, and, and, and that sort of thing that plays into it. If we're extending care across the whole community, would that, th that fund not be better spent targeted? The short answer is yes. Um, so uh, that's what we're proposing. We're proposing that the first tranche be pensioners and healthcare cardholders. Um, uh, essentially because that's a low-income group um, and the, for the children, they've already covered by, for family tax benefit A. Um, we're assuming in our costings that the, the introduction of the scheme, say just for pensioners and healthcare cardholders, will bring the age-specific use for all age groups up to the age-specific use that the top income decile gets. So it's, it is a targeted scheme to start with but we're saying that over, over a decade you should move to a universal scheme. The problem, one of the problems with targeted schemes is that you end up with, uh, if you're just above the income limit, you, you end up with a problem. And if you saw that graph of um, 
uh, people who miss out, even at high incomes, you end up with people missing out. So yes, I agree with you, a targeted scheme is where to start. Hello, my name's Michael Johnston. I'm a uh, relationship banker at ANZ and I look after healthcare uh, professionals such as dentists. Um, my question's about the dental workforce. So um, obviously if we go to a model where there's more funding and more people seeing dentists, what do you see that doing to the dental workforce? Do we need more dentists? The right care at the right time, does that mean we need to incentivise dentists to move into different areas or places? And do we need more dentists in the public system if that's the way you're going as well? So um, we have uh, looked at the workforce implications and for the first tranche, this pensioners and healthcare cardholder tranche, uh, we believe you don't need to train any more people. That is, if you look at, um, say, the average hours worked by a dentist, um, they are less than the average hours worked by a GP or a, a, a doctor or a physio. So we think there's undercapacity in the existing dental workforce um, that could be brought into the market if people had money to pay for that. Whether what you do in terms of the workforce as you expand, uh, we haven't attempted to project. Um, so I suspect that you'd have to think differently when you're aiming at when at, at the further way you're down. And what we said was that the government should announce that it is aiming towards universality over a 10-year period. And as part of that, it would also announce what its workforce plan is to get there. What we have argued is, and it was also in Zoe's presentation, about the workforce should be working at their full scope of practice. And that is not happening at the moment. And so we, in our costing, have assumed that some aspects of oral health care you would normally expect it to be done by an oral health therapist rather than a dentist, and we've built that into our costings. And so uh, if a dentist wants to do it, they of course can, but they'd get paid the same as if an oral health therapist did it. And so that the the workforce, the, the part of the reshaping should be including a, a, a workforce redesign as well. Suppose that you are magically the Minister for Health for the Commonwealth Government and you had exactly $1 billion spare. Would you spend it in this area and not in mental health or in Indigenous health? I guess, in other words, do the morbidity and mortality data say that this is the single most important area? Yeah, we, we had a, a debate about that. It's a very good question. Um, we had a, a serious debate about that. Um, and... And, and the way it was most um, focused for us was in the issue of if we've got money to improve access to health care, would it be dental care that you spend it on? And so one of our slides showed the proportion of people who miss out on a prescription because of not being able to afford it or miss out on specialty care because of not being able to afford it and miss out on dental care because of not being able to afford it. And um, you might say, well, missing out on a prescription or a specialist medical visit is way, way, way more important than missing out on dental care because, you know, dental care is only your mouth and it's not really part of your body and all that sort of stuff. However, 
in the end, we, as I said, that's the debate we had and that's the way we phrased it in our trade-offs. And we, in the end, said, look, the number of people involved are way bigger, twice as much as any of the other areas, two million versus a million or less than a million. And the, it is just not fair to say that dental care is so much less important than prescriptions that, you know, that it's much more important to fix the prescription problem even though it's a smaller number than it is to fix the dental problem. So that that's the debate we ended up having in our little team. The health team is not a great big team. So that's where we came to. Um, so, yes, is that what we've said. Um, of course... Uh, the other issues are important. I'm not denying that mental health, for example, and Indigenous health are not important. I'm not entirely sure that the Indigenous health issues are a money issue. There are a whole lot of other issues that need to be addressed simultaneously with Indigenous health. Mental health is obviously an area where it, there is underfunding. Um, but in a sense, some of these, um, it's also... Is it clear what needs to be done? And in, in in dental care, I think it is clear what needs to be done. That you know, it's a judgment call. Hi, Ben Harris. I'm uh, from the Australian Health Policy Collaboration, part of the Mitchell Institute of Victoria University. And last year, we did um, Australia's oral health tracker. Um, comment for Dr. Duckett. Um, one of the slides you didn't put up, which I've mentioned, uh, which is in our tracker and uh, you've used previously, is that only 2% of government funding in health is for oral health care. And uh, that certainly doesn't match the burden of disease. Um, for Drs Cole and Weiner, first congratulations on the program you're running at Dental Health Services Victoria. You're doing some amazing stuff, which is getting a lot of recognition around the world. Um, my question is about prevention. Um, what are the best things we can do for prevention to prevent oral health disease and who, who should be responsible for it? Um, look, I think that um, there's two levels of prevention. There's the obviously the population health stuff and I think that does need to be at government level. Um, it's traditionally done at a state government level, um, but I think that um, things like it would be much, you know, I'll, I'll say that I think it'd be good for government um, at federal level to have very strong views on things like fluoridated water supply, um, because that is, is as Zoe said, a you know proven public health um, um, initiative. Um, the, the other side of it is the um, more settings-based interventions. Um, we do a lot of those in South Australia. In fact, my, this is in public settings. In fact, most states around Australia or most jurisdictions would do a number of those. Um, there needs to be more work done on making sure that they are high value as well, and that's work being done on that at the moment. And then there's obviously the prevention interventions that happen at the chair um, and there's also an, there's a lot of literature about those. And one of the things we are now doing is designing a lot of our clinical pathways and guidelines to make sure we pick up on which are the things that have got the most evidence to support it. 
Also, like rest of health, there are a lot of things that we do that we don't have evidence for. doesn't mean that it doesn't work. We just don't have the evidence for yet. So part of it is what can we do to assist that. This is a long journey. won't happen overnight, but we're certainly moving in that direction. And one of those I'll add that we don't have the evidence for, but is a really, I think, innovative approach is we sponsor Primrose the Hippo at Werribee Zoo. And the reason we sponsor Primrose is not just because it's fun, but she gets her teeth cleaned regularly and thousands and thousands of school children learn about oral health care prevention from the zookeepers at Werribee Zoo. And in school holidays, we have a dental van and there's queues to for the dental van, not even just for Primrose, but they actually come for the dental van. So it's a really wide range of people who can do prevention and how we think about it innovatively, I think it's really important as well. One of the things we say in the draft report is that as you move to the latter stages, you might think about a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages, which would raise about half a billion a year to go towards some of this expansion. Uh, I'm, in, I'm Balai Jumper, I'm independent researcher on this uh, public services. Uh, in this dental health area, you know, you can, the funding is there in a total, but I want to know how it is kind of uh, divided uh, across uh, say basic uh, preventive care and basic services and major care because we don't know uh, from the figures uh, that uh, today's slides uh, how they have, what percentage has been allocated uh, and how consumed uh, in, yeah. in general. Um, I don't have that in my mind, but one of these two might, but did might. But there was a study done by uh, John Spencer at the University of Adelaide a few years ago now, where he looked—I think it was John Spencer—we looked at the orientation of uh, public and private dental care, and interestingly, public dental care was much more curatively treatment-oriented than preventively oriented compared to private dental care. And I put that down to just the overwhelming demand. The, uh, you know, that they just do not have the, res the luxury of the prevention orientation that they would like to have because they're just so overwhelmed by poor oral health that's fronting up to their doors. And in that paper, which we cite in our report, he did talk about the proportion of uh, investments in the different uh, sectors. Do you have any questions? Um, look, I think what you've said there is right, Stephen, but one of the things that we are really aware of is that the current service mix is probably not a good value-based mix, um, and that's why the, the whole martini clinic view is really important, because what we need clinicians to do is to look at their data and really challenging it and go, is this the right mix? Is this actually improving health outcomes? Or are we just doing things to people because that's the way we always do it? I might think of things that I've done to people in the past and look back on it and think, I probably didn't improve health outcomes doing that. And I think we need to spend a lot more time challenging ourselves. And when we get the patient reported outcome data at the same time, we'll get a lot more of an idea about whether we're actually improving health outcomes or not. Um, so I think we're going into a new space. We don't know the answer yet, but I could almost categorically say that the mix that we have now is either public or private probably isn't going to be the mix we'll have in 10 years' time. Uh, I'm not sure this will answer your question, but um, we I think understanding what patients want is really important element of that. 
we have a case study from our value-based healthcare work where we had an 80-year-old woman who didn't have very many teeth in her lower jaw and the team were getting busy to make dentures until someone remembered to ask what she actually wanted and she'd come in to have one lower tooth capped. So we were about to spend a lot of money delivering something that she didn't actually want. So I think that also thinking, just bearing in mind in that conversation is what health outcomes do our patients, our consumers, our community actually want has to be a part of that conversation. Thanks. Um, hi, uh, my name is uh, Kyle Turner. I'm a public health lecturer at the University of Melbourne. Uh, thank you for your talks. Just wondering if you're actively looking at new technologies uh, to help solve um, part of the problem. What particular new technologies? Uh, potentially AI and healthcare. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, we are, yes. Um, that's actually going to be really important because if you think of the value equation of health outcomes over cost, um, there is AI that could assess, assist with um, health outcomes like talking to people and, and giving them information, etc., collecting their, potentially even collecting the patient-reported outcome data. Um, I mean, this is all pie in the sky. I'm, I'm at the extent of my knowledge on AI now. Um, but the intention is to try and use that. So we are looking at that at the moment. Um, very early days, but we'd have to be crazy not to. And point six in the value-based healthcare uh, framework is IT. And that's, I think, meant as an enabling platform, but increasingly, as Deb said, moving through to how to use those technologies more intelligently. Uh, George Derrick um, with DHSV um, and so this, in public dentistry I think the expectations of consumers are you know at, set at a particular level but as you move into the general private sphere those expectations might move. Um, if So this is a question for Stephen Duckett. Um, if you were to expand uh, this program to the entire population do you think you would be able to meet those expectations? Yeah, you're quite right. The evidence seems to be that um, lower-income people have lower expectations of 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 not only well they have we we know they have fewer visits per head partly because of cost. If you eliminated those cost barriers, there may still be other barriers to access. Um, they can't get time off work, or they have dental phobia, or whatever, whatever. And even if you eliminated all the other barriers, their expectations of what good dental care would look like is different from higher income people uh, at present. And um, so do we think, well, I'd, I don't know in the longer term whether lower income people would begin to have the same expectations of what good dental care looks like. Uh, after they're able to get the access. Um, I just don't know the answer to that. I do think the, the what economists call moral hazard, that is um, people going to the dentist unnecessarily is probably not high. Um, it oh. is, it, you know, if I had a choice of my holiday in France or a visit to the dentist, it's probably the case I go to France. Um, so I don't, I just don't know if we eliminate the financial barriers, what would happen? What we're saying in this proposal is it's primary dental and prevention oriented. And so some of the orthodontics and other treatments are not going to be covered. And they are one of the areas of difference. Um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know about you know, choice of fillings and all those sorts of things. I, I'm not 
dental enough to know that. Um, but yes, it's a good point, but um, it's not, a, not an issue that we're near having to address at this moment, I think, because of the access problems are so, so great. Do you want to comment on that? No. Susan, uh, Tan from Deakin University. Uh, I just wanted to ask around um, whether there's some considerations around um, including the broader health workforce and just dental professionals, because as we know, many people present in primary health care, but not necessarily are a, a dental practitioner. Yeah, we haven't. We we hinted at some of that, but you're quite right. There is there's a lot of work that can be done by other health professionals. In, especially in, in the prevention orientation. We haven't talked a lot about that at all. Um, that's obvious. I mean, you've heard us talk about value-based healthcare, but that certainly is a component of value-based healthcare, is to have as many other people that have more contact and um, deliver some of the service. And, and some of that might be our response to the poor access. Um, dental people do not get to see many people, but there's lots of other people, other health professions particularly, that actually see a lot more people. So. And, and there's a lot of work being done now uh, on dental varnish being a, applied by other professionals um, and so on. So, yeah, it's absolutely an important idea. And Scotland has a really innovative program. I'm not sure if you've seen that with children where uh, oral health therapists go into schools and teach the teachers how to teach the kids around oral health and hygiene. And they reported to us when we visited some of the children had never seen a toothbrush before. There wasn't one in the house. Um, so it's actually not just the health workforce, but also teachers became a really big part of prevention for them. And they saw significant improvements in health outcomes as a consequence. Hi, uh, George Steele from the Productivity Commission. Uh, my questions are for Zoe, but Stephen, given your experience in Commonwealth State Relations, you might have some views too. Does pushing ahead with value-based healthcare require the Commonwealth to start um, paying its contribution in a different way. The dental-weighted activity units seem to be pressing forward for more activity rather than outcomes and, and health, like you're talking about. Is, uh, is that a necessary precondition? Uh, or are you, do you think you'll be able to press ahead? Uh, so I'll go, I'll go first. Um, I, the, the dental agreements between the Commonwealth and the states say the states have to provide a whole lot of data, and they're not. New South Wales being an example, we think. And I think this is a bigger issue as the Productivity Commission has raised. We are not collecting enough data on what actually goes on in any of our interactions. You know, we spend billions of dollars on general practice care, for example, without knowing, with knowing only the age and sex of the person who goes to the consultation, having no idea about what the presenting problem was or anything like that in any aggregated sense. And the same is true of dental. You know, why you have a dental-weighted activity unit with no even hint of a clue about the outcome measurement, and you could have had, even without ITROM, you could have had some requirement to report on some of those things. And you can't actually design a better payment system in the absence of the data and, you know, I think it was a wasted opportunity, but there, Bob, Zoe? Um, yes, would be my answer. Uh, and I think I just said a little bit of background or context that this is not a... I don't think value-based healthcare is purely about dental. I think this is about how we look at healthcare broadly. And I'm aware of at least four state governments that are seriously looking at how we do this, as well as conversations at the Commonwealth 
as well as conversations at the World Economic Forum. So it's a global movement around how we shift this, but I, I do think we need to have a really serious think about it. It's creeping into language in COAG agreements. It's in there around how do we fund for value and outcomes. Not really defined yet, but I think, yes, absolutely, it's an opportunity to explore that. I just refereed a paper for a journal which looked at what health insurance funds in the US think value-based care is. <sighs> And, you know, they were 18 separate definitions, you know, but everybody's talking about it. They all mean something different. And over there, sorry, yeah. Hi, uh, I'm from the University of Melbourne. I just had a question regarding um, how I read a lot of articles how uh, poor oral hygiene leads to cardiovascular disease and bone loss. And um, especially in the elderly, uh, it can really affect, uh, increase the chance of arthritis. So I was just wondering, like, would it be beneficial for um, Dental Health Service Victoria to merge into a coalition with other public health um, advocates and groups in order to maybe get this issue higher up on the political agenda? I think that'd be great, and I'd be really happy to work with you on that. Um, we we do try and work. Well, she with tells me not to tell her to do anything else at the moment, <laughs> but uh, we do work with a lot of other organisations. And one of the things that I think is quite interesting is that there's a growing body of evidence about the links between um, lots of chronic diseases and poor oral health. Um, and um, I had a. Um, a medical professor, I suppose, doing a pile of work for me at one stage on this, and she said, oh, it's just like reading the original documentation that linked smoking to lung cancer many, many moons ago. And she said, I think you're in that space now. And even in that, I mean, that was about seven years ago, she did that work for us. And now there's just this huge pile of data showing the links. But I think there's even, when you talk to people in the community now, more and more people are aware of some of those links, but a lot more work needs to be done. And I think that's where having other groups having this, the right information to is really useful. We have time for one last question only. So one last question. Is that Don? Don, you can tell us about the link between yes. cardiovascular <laughs> to the You should have answered that question rather than yes. asking a question. I'd just like to uh, compliment um, Zoe and Deb on their work, pioneering work, truly pioneering work uh, in value-based healthcare and the maturity of the thinking that's sitting behind your work to bring this into uh, the clinical realm and the redesign work. Uh, I've had the privilege of working with members of your team in the last couple of days. I've even learnt new words, gingival cravicular fluid. I, uh, <laughs> who knew? Who knew? But uh, the really exciting development, I think, is this idea of uh, that there's a link between oral health and uh, cardiovascular health and ultimately even dementia. Sorry, Donnie, you're going to tell people yeah, who you I are? Yeah, I'm going to ask you a question. No, no, who, tell people who you are. Oh, I'm a general physician from a public hospital, uh, Monash Health, and uh, uh, a very strong interest in chronic disease management. And why we're working with you is to try to look at how oral health impacts on chronic disease management in the public sector. My question is really, how are you going to work with the uh, general health services out there to bring oral health uh, into chronic disease management? How are you going to help us? Thank you. 
I thought, you know, our wheel that we have there, one of those wedges is yours. So you're helping us do that. So, I mean, that, that's the, one of the things that's been so fabulous about this whole journey is so many people are working with us on it. None of this is done by ourselves. It's actually a really strong collaborative model. Um, and it makes a rule. So when we find people that are passionate and have got expertise, we, we join with them just as we have um, here in respect to... And this is the integration with um, the integration part with other health services and particularly chronic diseases because of the links that you were talking about. They're very strong. So that was a great question to end with and a great place to end with. I'd like to thank uh, Zoe for presenting and being on the panel and Deb for being on the panel. And I'd like to thank all of you uh, for coming here uh, to hear us and also for the good questions we got from you. Um, the policy pitch is a regular event uh, put on by Grattan here at the State Library and there's another one in two months time. Um, I don't know what the topic is but you can look at it up, up on the Grattan Institute website. One of my colleagues uh, will be organising it. So thank you all very much for coming. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.